0: Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry, where we tackle social, political, and cultural issues from the perspective of unapologetic guests while highlighting citizen activists doing amazing things throughout the country. So when I first heard Ben Glebe was running for president, I thought it was a joke. I mean, he is a comedian after all, but his candidacy is real. He believes career politicians are not the answer to our problems and that they actually are the problems. So I wanted to find out why he decided to launch a campaign, the issues he would focus on and his hopes for our future.
1: Hello, I'm Ben Glebe, and I'm running for President of the United States of America. Sorry, not sorry. I've been traveling the country nonstop for the better part of 19 years. I know your struggles. I have those same struggles. I know what it's like to not be able to pay your bills or to have a health scare like I had a couple of years ago and not be sure how you're going to pay for it. The gap between the rich and the rest of us keeps widening. I'm Ben Glebe, and I'm a comedian. It's a pretty amazing job. There's no reason I should ever want to give that job up. And normally I would not. But these are not normal times.
0: When you were a little boy, did you ever want to run for president?
1: <laughs> when I was a little boy was probably the last time the thought entered my head. Um, I just grew up loving America so much. And I was just a very patriotic kid. My grandfather had been through everything to get to America and to make his life happen. From after- where? From where? He was born in Poland and then moved to China and was in a labor camp in Siberia during World War II. Wow. And his whole family, his brothers and parents, were killed in the Holocaust by the Nazis. And and the classic story of trying to get to America to make your life happen and to live mm-hmm. out the American dream. He um, was separated from my grandma and for four years when he was in labor camp. And when he got out, he had to figure out a way to get her and him both to Israel. Were there for the founding of the country. And he spent a lot of time finding permanent homes for children orphaned by the Holocaust, permanent homes in Israel. And then he came to America with literally the classic story of no money in his pocket, I think Mm -hmm. maybe $10, and became a huge success in business and climbed all the way up to being independently wealthy and and running a business and living in Beverly Hills and like literally the ultimate success story. And he believed so much in America. And he was Republican, by the way. You know, a party that has lost its way, um, in my opinion. And he just taught me to love this country so much and what it can do What did do he for teach you. you about it? He just taught me about possibility. He taught me about how America can offer anybody the chance to change their circumstance and the chance to make themselves. He always was a man about hard work. You work hard, you'll achieve what you want and i believe in that firmly and that's why i believe in capitalism as well when you know people are constantly trying to pit the country as oh it's a capitalist country only and the democrats are trying to make us socialist it's neither or we are both and we always have been both mm-hmm. and even trump is very socialist in some of his policies and things that he does he's very socialist in His tariffs, that's not a free market principle. He's socialist in the subsidies for sure that he gives to farmers to make up for his bad policies. And so I'm a compassionate capitalist and that's how I've always described myself because I believe in the capitalist system and the chance to be able to make your life happen. But we also must have compassion as human beings and my grandfather taught me that as well. And so um, I just grew up patriotic in third grade our teacher let us choose a song every every day one student got to choose a song to play on his record player and i would whenever it would come to me i would always choose the national anthem so there's that and then one time um a student in a, a friend of mine is now a successful author actually but he's wrote a book called the lemonade life zach friedman but he looked at me one time in the auditorium of our elementary school in, in like third grade and he said to me oh my god i just had a vision you'd be president of the united states Really? Strangely So that was the only time I ever thought entered my head I'm like oh, That's interesting um, But then I kind of Put that out of my head And decided to be A comedian instead Similar mm-hmm. These days it is I used to want To get married too You know, you know who ruined That for me though Married people Because no one's Excited about being married What's the best response You ever get When you ask somebody What married life is like The best response You get is Yeah it's great no no it's good it's good it's good it's like they're asking you is it good it's good right no it's good it's great how's that new video game you bought fucking amazing dude <laughs> i don't know why you'd name a fast food restaurant el pollo loco the crazy chicken you wouldn't name a hamburger place the mad cow a lot of these spanish named fast food places have terrible names what about baja fresh Baja means below. <laughs> They're always trying to keep us under control when we were in school. Remember in high school, they'd threaten us with our permanent record. You get in trouble, you go to the principal. He'd be like, "Bad news, young man. This is going on your permanent record." I'd be like, "Oh no! You're saying I've just ruined my life?" But it was a lie. How permanent was that record? Where is it now? anybody ever been on a job interview and they're like mr. Johnson your qualifications are perfect we are oh no apparently you were in chemistry get out of my office you should have thought about that when you were 14 no we do not validate
0: tell me about that trajectory of becoming a comedian because I do think that it's an important story to get you to where you are now
1: for sure um I just always saw the world in a skewed way. I saw the world comedically since I was a young boy. Um, My parents made the best mistake ever as parents, which was I had a a regular bedtime like any young boy of like 8 o'clock, but I had a TV in my room, and they never made me turn the TV off. So I've been a night owl since I was 7 years old. Mm -hmm. Watching Saturday Night Live reruns and (laughs) SCTV and Kids in the Hall and David Letterman, and it shaped my brain.
2: Some people look at it flag swaying in the breeze at the White House and they say, that's America. Me, whenever I see an American flag hung in the window of a basement apartment by guys who have better things to do with their money than buy curtains, I say, that's America to me. Where spelling doesn't count, people's pets do. Where else can a guy get a job riding a whale at marine land? But in America Is that clock, uh, is it accurate here, this clock? Because according to this clock We've now killed two and a half minutes That is right? All right!
1: And I always looked at the world satirically And I love comedy because you see through The bullshit The bullshit Yeah You see truth through comedy That's what I love so much about it
0: Are you allowed to curse if you're running for president?
1: Typically no, but now, fuck yes you are (laughs) Okay, good Yeah, I think imagine if that crossed the line for somebody now it would be a hypocrisy that i would not be surprised by.
0: i actually have a theory that the reason why trump repeats himself over and over is because he would normally curse in the (laughs) second place but he knows he can't curse now because he's the president of the united states so he actually just repeats his last sentence instead of going can you fucking believe this (laughs) (laughs)
1: That is very possible. Right? That is very possible. Also, he repeats himself, I believe, because he literally is trying to hypnotize people when he speaks. Mm
0: -hmm. And maybe himself, trying to convince himself. Of
1: of his own bullshit? Yeah. He literally always is like, we're going to build a wall. Wall, wall, wall. You're getting very sleepy. Want a wall. Look at the tiny spinning hand. And you leave that speech and you're like, I don't know what he talked about, but I think we need a wall. (laughs) I think we need a wall. I feel like I've slept for an hour.
2: It's a vital tool, it's an important tool It's maybe the most important tool that they can think of We're going to build the wall, we have no choice We have no choice Build that wall 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 Do
0: you think that his supporters are totally hypnotized?
1: I do. I think that they are one of three things, one of four things. I think they are either hypnotized, mm-hmm. some are just embarrassed and afraid to admit a mistake cause it's a big problem I think most people have.
0: That's ego. Driven. Ego.
1: And it's, it's such a mistaken view of ego, too, because people think that... A strong ego is one that can't admit a mistake.
0: That digs their heels in.
1: Right, but it's so clearly the opposite. Mm-hmm. If your, your ego is so fragile, if you can't admit a mistake that it would crush your whole sense of yourself, that's a very non-agile yeah. ego. In fact, one that can admit a mistake and learn and grow and change is one that is strong. Um, so it's either that or that, or it's people that are so desperate for change and so desperate for a better lot in life for themselves and their families financially that they just have to, they see themselves as having to put up with a lot of Trump's garbage. They agree he's a bad person and they think I have to deal with it because he's promising me things that other politicians never have. And that's an audience that I can talk to. And then lastly, it's a lot of racists and negative influences in our society that a lot of
0: racists part. or do you think it's just a handful of racists that yell the loudest
1: I mean it's hard to know because noise is I'm noise I hope I hope you're right on that um a lot doesn't mean millions but I think there's a good amount I think that there's a lot of people unfortunately I don't think it's a tiny amount I don't think it's a handful because just from my experiences as a comedian traveling the country Unfortunately, a lot of places in the South usually is where I find it. While there's tons of amazing people, there's also lots of people that drop the N-word at the drop of a hat.
0: Did you go to college?
1: I did. UC San Diego.
0: And what did you study?
1: Communications and theater minor.
0: Perfect. Yes. For everything that your life entails right now.
1: Indeed. So, oh, so to answer your question from before about becoming a comedian. So I always saw the world comedically and I wanted, it just was the way that I identified. I loved Comedians just seem to make the most real people. And it's also why I really believe comedians would make great politicians, because they're known for keeping it real and telling the truth, when politicians are known for the opposite. They're known literally for lying and self-serving and, and not caring in reality about people. And I will say the side note, a, com- a comedian just won the presidency in the Ukraine. So please keep that in mind. Is that true? Oh yeah, by a landslide over the, over the incumbent. Oh, I didn't know that. 75% of the vote, Zelensky is the new president. Zero political experience before. His only uh, political experience ever was playing the president on a comedy show on TV.
0: Amazing. Volodymyr Zelensky is both the Ryan Seacrest
2: <laughs>
0: and the Julia Louis-Dreyfus of
2: Ukraine. <laughs>
0: His TV talent show, League of Laughter, regularly gets some of the highest ratings in the
2: country. An actor who played the president of his country in a fictional TV show has won the presidency of Ukraine for real, according to preliminary exit poll results.
0: A comedian will be the next president after
2: incumbent Petro Poroshenko conceded victory today. Volodymyr Zelensky won in a landslide, pulling in over 70 percent. Of the vote. What we've seen here tonight is really unprecedented, certainly uh, in the Soviet and in, in the block of former Soviet countries. Really, almost anywhere, when you think about it.
1: So, I have a lot more political experience than that. But, and then I always wanted to be a comedian and have that life. But I grew up with a severe speech problem, and I wasn't even able to talk much of my childhood. Was How did a,
0: that affect you?
1: In a lot of very interesting ways, because. It was beyond a stutter. I had a stutter, but also a disfluency where I couldn't even make sounds come out of my vocal cords oftentimes. Couldn't say hi to a friend passing me in the hallway. Mm. Literally, they'd be approaching me and I'd be like, and I just couldn't. And so it affected me, one, in the way that I love to sing out loud because I could always sing. Singing opens your vocal cords.
0: It didn't affect your singing, just your speaking. Interesting.
1: And it didn't help my singing voice either. I never got better. And But what it also did was a few things. Um, It forced me to stop talking and to listen Mm. and to be more aware of people's condition and the fact that they probably have things that they don't want to talk about or the ailments that they're suffering through quietly. And it made me just observe people much more because I was too talkative as a kid, I think, talking way too fast. And so it made me do that. It also um, taught me to overcome obstacles. And it taught me that you can really overcome great odds to get from a place where I couldn't say hi and have to tell a teacher, even in the discussion room of 15 students, even through college. Please How did me-. you
0: overcome that fear?
1: Yeah, and it was fear. So I'm sure. I'd have to tell them, never call on me, I can't speak. And I overcame it by a lot of realizations. I give a talk sometimes about conquering the fear and mastering public speaking. And it's people's greatest fear, right? It's public speaking, so many people. I realized I was seeing it wrong. And a lot of it is about ego we already talked about. So people think when they're speaking, it's all eyes on them. And it's such an important moment. And they have this huge moment now that they have to present. And they think that they're about to be Martin Luther King Jr. up there. And the people expect some grand oratory. And the opposite is true. People have very low expectations, I realized, in general in life. They're not expecting some great speech. They're barely listening to you. Mm. They're probably on their phone. If they're listening at all, they're trying to get some nugget of information that might help them. They don't give a shit about how you talk, if your pauses are eloquent, if your vocal tonality is beautiful or not. So get over yourself. It was me. It was about, I, I was so it, I was being too self-important. And it's a problem we have just in our country too much and in everybody's own ego. It's I realized speaking is a service job. Mm-hmm. Exactly like serving fries at McDonald's or being a stockbroker. You're providing a service for somebody. And it's no more important. You're just doing it on a six-inch raised platform in front of a microphone.
0: I always put this pressure on myself to be inspiring when I speak mm-hmm. publicly. And... I think it actually hurts the connection because so much of that is about connecting. Totally. Right. Totally. Just being able to have a connection with someone I think is inspiring almost.
1: A hundred percent. Yeah. I think that's a key thing too, is don't, I learned not to speak in a way. Don't speak in a way that you think will be good. Just always speak from your heart and always look at people in the crowd and connect and that will adjust your speaking style in the most organic way. There's a lot of lies we're told. You guys are aware of them, you know? Try to keep us under control. What's the one the big ones we hear is each of us we're told in the course of our lives while we're sleeping, on average, we swallow eight spiders. Yeah, I call bullshit. There's no way that's true. We all know that's not true in our heart of hearts. We know that's not true. You know how I know that's not true? Because here's everybody here how we would react if we were sleeping and a fucking spider entered our mouths. Everybody here.
2: No, no, no!
1: They wouldn't sleep for one year so we could build some kind of a spider dam, some kind of a spider blockade system. We would not sleep until that glorious day. Also, how is it possible Anybody would know we swallowed that many spiders. Is that somebody's life research? I'm just going to watch you sleep every night for one goal in mind. Spider mouth entry.
0: Who is your favorite orator right now? Of all time. Oh, right now? Yeah. Or of all time.
1: I mean, Obama's pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty. I love him very much, even though for being one of the great orators of all time. When speaking off script, he definitely did a lot of um, another thing. And there's a lot of mm's and like he could have gotten rid of that. It's
0: like Biden does the well listen, folks. Yeah, yeah. Right. They all have their yes. little hook that where they're like what going through their file cabinet of exactly what the talking point is on exactly that issue. Right.
1: It's like when I used to be called on in Spanish class and I would always start every sentence with. You no say sé exactamente pero creo pero creo que si sí, which is I don't know exactly, but I believe that it might be <laughs> just a great stall tactic to think of other words. Um, but I love his speaking. I usually get pretty inspired by Bernie when he gets in his real passionate mm-hmm. moments. And then the math starts and it gets very hard to follow.
0: Did you see when John Stewart confronted the committee the
1: congressional committee the, yeah. on about the 9-11 victims fund. exactly i did it was i amazing. thought that
0: was an amazing piece of oration
1: it was beautiful because it was just so heartfelt and real
0: heartfelt
1: and off the cuff
0: off the cuff but real specific very pointed
2: setting aside that no american in this country should face financial ruin because of uh, a health issue Certainly, 9 first responders shouldn't have to decide whether to live or to have a place to live. And the idea that you can only give them five more years of the VCF because you're not quite sure what's going to happen five years from now, well, I can tell you, I'm pretty sure what's going to happen five years from now. More of these men and women are going to get sick, and they are going to die. And I miss seeing
0: people speak like that, because mm-hmm. I think right now we have you know, this guy in the office that can't. Put a sentence together, mm. and um, he puts so many
1: together at once. Yes,
0: from different. It just flies thoughts. around.
1: I'm the best. Another thing. A lot of people are saying this is another <laughs> great thing, and people are saying I'm the best. People are telling me that we're going to do this. Don't like brown people. It's like it's just <laughs> a lot of stuff coming at you. It's like did he just throw in a, I don't like brown people in there? That was random. Um, and then someone speaks from the heart and emotionally, and it's so
0: different and eloquently,
1: so beautifully. And that also was an example. Because the, the biggest hurdle I've been facing in my campaign for president so far is people always saying, is this a joke? Are you serious? Must be a joke. Because I'm a comedian. Well, look what John Storch just did. Look at the people that are instantly verified and legitimized as serious candidates for president. It's just all 23 people who are already in government or multi, multi, multi-millionaires. And they're instantly, any congressperson, two-term congressperson announces they're covered in every news station. But why? We all know that Congress is ineffective. And, and does,
0: th- there's no surprises. We know exactly where they stand. And
1: They all stand for almost the same thing. And they're arguing on tiny margins of these issues. And I keep watching every night. Judy Woodruff on PBS NewsHour has another candidate on. And she asks them, rightly so, the first question. Why do we need your voice in there? We've got 23 others like you. And they struggle to answer that in any interesting way. Yet it's no, there's no question why you would need my voice in there. I have a very different voice in this race. Than okay, so why do people. we
0: need your voice in there?
1: Good question. Oh, but quickly, before I get to that, yeah, the I... last point on on the, on the issue about all of them is that they're all running, and we know how ineffective Congress is. And take the 9-11 Victims Compensation Fund for an example, have not been able to extend it for the life of, the, of these heroes' lives for all of these years, 19 years since 9-11, 18 years. And those are the people that we take seriously, that have not even the, the quote-unquote good guys, even the guys on the Democratic side they are fighting for these victims and fighting against Republican obstructionism, even on our heroes' lives, have been unable to convince even that. And Jon Stewart, a comedian, goes in for one day, mm-hmm. for one speech, for 10 minutes, and speaks from the heart, and they vote unanimously the next day to approve that fund through the House, through the panel, at least for now. And you doubt whether I'm a serious candidate? Ask that to all of the other candidates who are maybe running for self-aggrandizing reasons when there's already 22 of your cohorts in there. So why we need my voice is, I think, for two major reasons. Is one, we need to take our democracy back. And you're not going to do that by trying the same thing over and over again. We've been electing over and over again the same cautious self-interested career politicians and ultra wealthy elite and expecting different results. Well, that's the definition of insanity, right? Literally trying the same thing over and over again. And it's not that some of these people aren't well-intentioned. I like a lot the personalities and what seems like the character of a lot of the Democrats running for the nomination but they've been in power and have been ineffective at creating systemic change, at creating big change. And I think to large degree, it's because when you're in power for a long time, you just lose the common touch. You lose the urgency of now, the urgency of how important these problems are in people's lives. And there's nobody other than somebody who literally is, and I wish there were more people like that running, but there are so many financial barriers who are actually the workers around the country that aren't entrenched, powerful people But the closest to that is a road-traveling stand-up comedian. I've chosen to spend my life for the last two decades traveling to towns constantly, big and small, Republican and Democrat, making 300 or 30 people laugh. Sadly, often 30, because my ticket sales are not always what I want them to be. (laughs) And shaking everyone's hands after the show, hanging out with them, having a beer with them, not just when running for office, but for the life I chose. That's who you want representing you Because also, sadly, comedy clubs and strip malls, as I say, and cable TV shows don't pay as well as people think. People think you're on TV and you're instantly rich. I've been on TV for many, many years now, and I recently had to struggle to pay my bills. When my TV show went away, it doesn't even pay that much to begin with, and when it did, your money goes away, and you have to figure out how to pay your bills in a city with a very high cost of living. And so I think somebody who knows real struggles is so important to have advocating on your behalf. Democracy has been taken away from us in every way where only the rich and powerful have a voice. So somebody who truly understands how we have to get the money out of politics, how we have to stop partisan gerrymandering to carve districts around black people in America, in modern
0: day. 2019.
1: It's the most insane miscarriage of democracy that it's allowed. And politicians on both sides just allow it to be the reality. Right. Right. And so many other things. And
0: I think you're right. It's because it it's not it's not huge for them. It's not huge for their life. Yeah. It's it's and it's this idea of service that I think they forget about. Mm-hmm. That they take this job in office to be of service to people. And and it feels as though they're okay with the incremental wins right. because it keeps their job afloat.
1: Right. Right. It's 100% that. And they become friendly with everybody and entrenched.
0: I need to, we need to go. I mean, I could talk to you about how dysfunctional it is forever. But I want to go to that moment of, I'm going to run for president. Yes. Tell me about that moment in your mind. Was it something you were thinking about? Was it something Trump did that that created a, a switch for you that the light bulb went on?
1: It was everything that Trump did that hit a bunch of switches for me that turned on so many lights, I couldn't sleep. Um, I, in the back of my mind, like I said, since I was a kid, had the thought, maybe it'd be cool to one day go into politics. Didn't think I'd run for president, never. And I put that thought out of my head and definitively decided I would never do that because it started, that, that thought was restrictive for being a free comedian. Even starting out in my early 20s, you think that, And you're not free to speak on stage and say things you want to say and be a true artist. And so I had to close that door and just let myself be free and say crazy things and express every crazy thought. And Donald Trump gets, and I became along that path, very, very engaged in politics. And when George W. Bush won the first time, I became focused. When he won the second time, I became passionate and an activist and an outspoken comedian in a way that I never had been and started a podcast called Last Week on Earth where I cover the news and politics every week in a way that makes it accessible to people, in a way that makes people um, who never cared about politics care about it because I think that's so important. There's so many millions of people that are just completely overlooked by our messaging and our news media.
0: Yeah, and how it relates to their daily lives because that's what people care about.
1: Right, because nobody links it. Mm-hmm. nobody links it. Nobody says a global gag rule or a gag rule on, on abortion funding and even taught, referring to abortion services. They say, here, gag rule. They don't know. The gag rule means you have to shut the hell up and you can't tell your patients the truth. No one connects the human pieces. And so I started doing that and I became a guest correspondent on places like CNN and ABC News and NPR for years I, on a show where comedically I would try to help explain the things that were going on politically. And then Trump gets elected. And I became so fearful for our democracy and for the future of our country. And I just kept having this thought hit me late at night watching the news. I might have to throw my hat in the ring because I do not know if these other politicians can beat him. When we saw Hillary lose to him, a very talented politician, I think in most ways, An amazing resume. You can't ask for a better Very qualified. Incredibly qualified. Some say the most qualified candidate ever. And loses to him by an electoral landslide, pretty much. And I started thinking, what if it happens again? And America, as we know it, is gone. And I'll live the rest of my life just wondering, what if I threw my hat in the ring and maybe it helped? Maybe we do need a comedian at this moment. And I just couldn't avoid that call anymore, and I had to try. It would wake me up in the middle of the night, and I'm like, God! And it was so scary, and so why I jumped in so late. I kept saying no. I kept thinking of other ways. I, I, for a while, was exploring doing a comedic pilot about running, where satirically I was gonna run and and (laughs) make fun of the process. And I was actually shooting some of that and editing it, and it felt so empty. I'm at the edit bay making a very funny pilot that will never see the light of day, and I'm like, I can't release this because it's not what's needed now. Our country's in peril. And I kept rejecting that call until I couldn't anymore. And I just saw the people throwing their hat in the ring. It's the same politicians over and over again. I said, I just can't do it. And I had to put my life on pause and try the riskiest, scariest thing I've ever tried to offer my voice in this race to run for president of the United States. These candidates running for president work in government. That's where the lies come from. And in a time of fake news, And with a pathological liar president, comedians are the only people left whose job it is to tell you the truth. Plus, people always say they want a president they can see themselves having a beer with. I've already had beers with tons of you. Thank you very much for the beers, by the way. Unlike career politicians who sit in Washington or at fundraiser events their whole careers, I've been traveling around the country for the last 19 years. I've been hanging with regular people because I am one. I know your struggles. I've been there by your side. Regular people like us are kept out of the halls of power so that whether the president is Republican or Democrat, the gap between the rich and the rest of us keeps widening.
0: So you wake up in the morning and you go, I'm going to do it. Right. Is that what happened?
1: Yeah. Because Who was that- the
0: first person you told?
1: Well, so that's the second thing that I bring why we need my voice in the race is because I'm a comedian. The first is that we need a regular person who relates to regular people. And the second is that we need a comedian because I don't think anybody else can stop him. So I just kept thinking that. And I would talk to my girlfriend about, I think I need to do this. I think I might need to try.
0: She but, said you're fucking crazy.
1: She did. Yeah. I initially said I'm fucking crazy. And then I explained it and explained my thoughts. And she understood very quickly why it made sense. And then I told my parents whom I love and I'm so close with. And my parents at first didn't understand and said, are you nuts? You're not really qualified to be president. What public office have you held before? What business have you started or you become some huge success in? And that gave me a week or two of pause. And I'm like, well, that's, I guess, a fair point. And then I realized that in another aha moment, that's exactly why I should run. Because... We don't need always just people who are already in government and we don't need to keep valuing just ultimate success in business. That's why our country keeps tilting towards business interests only and towards corporate interests only and away from the common person.
0: Because we value the wrong things in success. A
1: hundred percent. We've lost sight of what the American dream is supposed to be. Which is what in your eyes? It is being able to achieve success in your field, job security, and financial security, most important than anything, so that you can have a safe, comfortable life, and know that you can provide for your family health care and food and safety. That is the American dream and being able to hopefully one day own a home so you have that piece of land in America. And it
0: shouldn't have to kill you to own that home. It should not.
1: You shouldn't have to work three or four jobs to own that home. And that's the American dream that I achieved. And I realized, shouldn't we have a president for once? And shouldn't we have a candidate in the race for once that just has aspired to that dream and achieved that dream, the accessible American dream, not the one that has been sold to us as a lie through people like Donald Trump and even other billionaires in the race that I'm going to become a billionaire or a Kardashian. No, you're not. You're not going to. There's some 0.00001% chance you will, but if everybody aspires to that 0.001% chance, everybody's going to end up disappointed and you're going to keep electing people that are going to try to sell you that dream that is not accessible and you're going to end your life being stuck where you are. We need somebody who actually knows that the real American dream is one that you can achieve, is one that if just a few things shift in the favor of low and middle income earners that make their lives a bit easier, that now those people can have the life they dreamt of in an accessible real way, that's something that I could help shift our mindset towards. And I realized that was what I could help offer And my parents realized that made sense too and are now huge supporters of the campaign They're recruiting their friends to donate and volunteer. And my girlfriend is working around the clock helping me on my campaign when she gets back from work. So
0: sweet and supportive. That's awesome.
1: Incredible. It's been the most touching thing I've ever experienced in my life is her support.
0: So, I mean, you know, then you email me and you're like, I'm running for president. Mm -hmm. And you followed that up with, this is not a joke. I'm serious. (laughs) And so I think you must have gotten a lot of like, are you joking? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right? Oh, yes. What is the most important thing about your platform as far as policy goes?
1: So I believe again, and I want to reemphasize it again because it's so important. Beating Trump is the competitive advantage I think I bring to the race over the other candidates because the last thing that my speech problem did for me is that when I would hit blocks in my speech, it would teach me to think of other ways to say things at a moment's notice. And my brain got fast. I think it opened neural connections. And it made me a really good improviser comedian. And we need that to take on the greatest heckler in American political history. And none of our other policy objectives will be possible. And the other 23 candidates can argue every issue at the margins and lose again. And then Trump is, with four more years, running roughshod with our democracy. And we don't have the country that we believe we always have had. So that has to be the number one. It needs to be a big factor in people's vote. Once we achieve that, the other two most urgent, in my mind, are climate change and income inequality. And they are two existential problems. One existential for our planet, and two existential for the individual lives of people in this country. And so once we stop Trump, we need to immediately take so seriously the urgent problem of our planet being in major
2: peril. Now to a dire warning about climate change. The government issued its most dramatic report yet. Experts say that we have until 2030 to avoid catastrophe. Urgent warnings of a severe threat to America's health and economy. The continental United States is already 1.8 degrees warmer than it was a century ago and the temperature may rise by another 2.3 degrees by 2050.
0: Among their alarming predictions, an agricultural catastrophe.
2: Extreme heat destroying crops, hundreds of billions of dollars lost. Climate change is here. It's happening. It's now. Americans are already paying for it. They're already suffering from it. It's not an abstract problem that may come on us at some time decades into the future. President Trump believes climate change is a hoax. We know this because he has said it over and over again. So Obama's talking about all of this with the global warming and the, that and a lot of it's a hoax. It's a hoax. I mean, it's a money-making industry, okay? It's a hoax.
1: It's insane how the scientists of the world agree that if we don't reverse course, not slow down, right. reverse course, within 12 years, our planet is po- past the point of no return and we are not taking drastic action to move off of fossil fuels. Instead, we get out of the Paris Climate Agreement when we need a stronger agreement and one that is more enforceable. We must get off of our use of plastics, reduce our meat consumption. We have to change the way we live. And we need somebody that can think out of the box and not in incremental ways to do that. We need somebody who says, we must come together and fight. And that's the other thing that I think on that issue is so important that Democrats so often do wrong is because we believe we're fighting for the good side of history and for the, the human side of issues. We try to be good and human and therefore too polite in the way we argue these issues. And the other side is bringing knives and guns and we're bringing fruits to this fight. We're bringing f- grapes to a gunfight. And you can't win that way. You end up with mm-hmm. just squash grapes. <laughs> and we need to fight harder. And so we have to frame things and phrase things in ways that are much more clever, like the Republicans have done so well under Frank luntz words that work and the direction of using people's emotions. We have to do the same. Climate change should not be able to be framed by the right as, oh, these soft liberal hippies hugging trees. No, we should say to them, you're supposed to be tough, aren't you? Are you afraid of this fight? Are you chicken?" Why don't you step up for the fight of our lives? You love action movies and you love Armageddon. This is Armageddon. It's like dealing with my seven-year-old. <laughs> exactly. It's like, you have to use psychological like, approaches. You
0: don't care about the environment. Yeah, challenge them. <laughs> yeah. 100%. Psychological warfare. Yeah, how do you
1: get your kid to eat who doesn't want to eat? Yeah. And I think that's what we have to do. And so there's that. And then with, with income inequality in this country and an ever-growing wage gap and income and wealth gap. We have to reprioritize the way that we function. The way that we distribute the successes in this country. And it's not a redistribution of wealth in some scary socialist way. It's just kindness and shifting ourselves off of a focus on greed. No one is saying, and we have to again focus on messaging when people on Fox News say they just want to take all your money away they don't want CEOs to make money they don't want companies to make money they want regulations up the ass so that you're not going to be able to ever succeed no no one ever said that no one ever said we don't want pharmaceutical companies to make money I want them to make still billions of dollars just not 35 billion dollars a year when you're charging for an HIV prevention drug thousands and thousands of dollars when in other countries it costs 60 dollars for or insulin Or insulin or hepatitis C vaccine that you can't get unless you're very sick because it's so expensive that we have to ration it to those who are super ill instead of helping stop the spread of these diseases. It's
0: so heartbreaking.
1: It's heartbreaking. And so you have to just play on people's humanity and speak to their humanity and say, we want you and make it very clear that we want you to be profitable. We want you to succeed in huge ways, but just with one simple tiny little asterisk on it, not at the expense of other human beings. That's all we ask. That's the only thing we ask. Once you're cool to your fellow humans,
0: then make billions. So that's a very philosophical answer, but what is the tangible policy behind that?
1: So one way, obviously you have to renegotiate prescription drug prices. Obviously, you have to provide health care to everybody, and the way I believe in doing that is in a combination of expanding Medicare access to the millions who do not have health care, but I don't personally believe in only Medicare, because Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, is so intricate and is so tied into every part of our economy, many parts of our economy, that just removing it could be very, very catastrophic to the economy, and It also, in some ways, would make access harder for healthcare for people because already in certain rural areas where they don't live near a doctor, it's very hard to get to a doctor. Even if you have coverage, you don't actually have access. And then if you take that away and you have people be only on Medicare, Medicare reimburses at way lower rates because of the purchasing power it has. And so some of these rural doctors and hospitals would have to close because they already are barely making enough. And then now you'd have to drive 500 miles to see a doctor, and that's not good. And I think America is based on being able to, if you have some need medically and you want some better coverage or procedure that is not covered by the government-provided Medicare, that you can purchase it. I don't want to stop a private market in this country. I would like to have both because there would be lines, like there are sometimes in Canada. So we need access for everybody while at the same time giving people the ability to buy different coverage. With people's day-to-day expenses, I believe firmly in instituting a vast expansion of the earned income tax credit, something that Robert Reich talks about a lot, and we're calling it the, the uh, cost-of-living tax refund. He calls it cost-of-living refund. And give people, either yearly or if they want it monthly, a refund on their taxes. If you are working a full-time job and you're a lower-middle-income worker, you will get money back just so that you can make ends meet and have some money put aside for an emergency and have some money that you can save. We just need to look at the math and see if people are working in America full-time and working hard and sometimes two and three and four jobs and aren't able to make ends meet You do have to increase a wealth tax and you have to stop these corporate loopholes that allow companies like Amazon and Apple to pay zero taxes when they are making billions and are becoming these monopolistic companies over our data, our lives, our products, our everything. It just makes common sense. With little shifts like that, you can fund helping people in this country
2: have a better and easier life. I'm talking about expanding something called the Earned Income Tax Credit, or EITC. And although it's been around for decades, it can be the basis of a revolutionary change in the lives of millions of people. As it now stands, the EITC gives thousands of dollars to the working poor, with the amount of money they receive gradually decreasing as their earnings rise until they reach a cap, which is now a little over $50,000. It works so well because it directly boosts the incomes of people who need it the most. Cash gives people freedom and dignity, the power to decide, for example, whether to have their car repaired or buy new shoes for their kids or save for a rainy day. And when working people have money to spend, they spend most of it in the communities they live in. This, in turn, causes businesses to hire more people to meet the demand. It's a virtuous cycle that lessens poverty, makes the tax code fairer, and boosts the overall economy. And that also with better messaging.
0: Well, I mean, across the board, we need better
1: messaging. Across the board. And that's why you need someone who maybe comes from entertainment, but on the good side, <laughs> and not on the side of these evil policies that can help do that. Because I know about marketing and about speaking to people and about convincing people of messages and connecting with people How about a, everywhere.
0: Affordable housing.
1: Affordable housing is a giant problem. We have to institute. I I'm I'm exploring an idea, and I don't have an official policy on this yet, but exploring idea about trying to figure out with affordable housing units in, especially in in cities where there are major work hubs, to give people some sort of rent controls on living in that area so that you cannot be priced out of your own city where you work. It just can't be that that property owners get to just run rampant with raising rents every single year. There has to be humanity there as well. And so you have to find ways to just protect people. And the messaging on that, again, is not one that we can allow conservatives to say, Oh, you see, they're trying again to stop American ingenuity and stop our ability to, to start businesses. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Again, it's just simply saying if you give people these common sense protections and make it easier for people to live, they will be able to start more businesses and That'll be more put, productive and be more productive and happier and work harder at work and because they're happier and they have less feel worth.
0: fulfilled. Yes. Be able to- Support their families.
1: And then they will be better workers for you and start better businesses and put more millions and billions into the economy and it will grow and your stock portfolios will grow and there won't be mass unrest in the streets because people are losing jobs to automation. Instead, we're actually helping them live and helping them have a way to breathe easy at night. Everybody wins.
0: How are you formulating these policies?
1: I have a great team of senior advisors some officials, some unofficials, some people that were pretty high up in the Obama administration and the Hillary campaigns and people that I know from Washington and a friend of mine that is that works as the major PR person at Planned Parenthood. And just over the years, I've been so fortunate to live in these circles of people that care so much about the world that I just happen to know a lot of people that are boots on the ground trying to help fix these problems directly. And I just speak with them. You know, when I was talking about the cost of living tax refund concept, I was I asked for a friend who I knew worked in economic um, policy and write wrote about it. If he could hop on the phone and we talked for two hours, he ended up being the guy that co-wrote the, the bill that's currently going through Congress on that. Oh, wow. So I'm just trying to, as best I can, talk to the smartest people I know, but also just by studying. I'm just doing a ton of... I'm doing the opposite of Sarah Palin's, I read whatever... Is put in front of me. I actually choose what I read and watch and look and, and look at and study.
0: Let's go through some, some issues. I'd love to hear your take on sure. them. Uh, let's talk about immigration. Yeah. People say it's, such, it's so complicated. I want to know what you would do to fix what's going on at the border right now.
1: What I would not do is put children in cages to begin with. You know, people love. It's a good start. It's a very good start, I think. Mm-hmm. People love eating cage-free eggs. Good for you. I try it as well. I think cage-free children's a higher priority.
0: Yes.
2: Yes right. or no? Are we still putting children in cages? <laughs>
1: Bye-bye.
0: Basically, what we saw are uh, dirty children who are malnourished, who are being severely neglected. They are being kept in inhumane conditions. They are essentially being warehoused, as many as three hundred children in a cell, with almost no adult supervision. How
2: many windows are there, Mike? Is that was that his question? Yeah. Zero.
1: And so we need to bring humanity to our immigration policies, because it's the very basis of what our country is. No liberals that I know are advocating for open borders like they attack us with. Nobody says, just do not enforce our borders. We need strong borders. And people on both sides have been in favor of border protections. I don't even think a wall is immoral. Both sides have been in favor of border protections. Hillary voted in the past for border fence. I've joked to my act that in some ways that's worse. You're, you're actually telling people trying to cross the border, you can peek in at America with your hands on the fence. <laughs> you can stand on the other side and say, uh-uh, no way, Jose, you can't come through. So we need to stop acting as though every idea brought up is so black and white. We need a combination of all of the best ways we can with technology and enforcement to protect our borders. We need to use technology, we need to use drone surveillance, we need to use stepped-up numbers of people monitoring the borders, but what we need to do to fix the problems, realize it is a humanitarian crisis that is causing human beings to come here, and you must welcome them with humanity. We will still adjudicate each case individually, and we will still, by providing more judges to be able to get people through the backlog of cases much faster, we will
0: for those that don't know, there are only seven hundred uh immigration judges to seven hundred and fifty thousand cases right now right uh so judges are, are definitely a big part of it there's uh also some people advise that uh you know feel free to take this um lifting the ten year ban on people that are picked up um and and uh have Illegal crossing on their record. There's a ten-year ban that they're not allowed back into the country. People think that that's why people come back over illegally. Whereas if they were just lift that ten-year uh-huh. ban and allow them actual port of entry right. entry, that that would help. Yes, as well.
1: That's a perfect common sense example mm-hmm. of something you can do. You just have to look at human psychology at most of these things and stop using humans as political pawns, and then policy comes a lot easier. And so, yes, if you don't want people to come back illegally, tell them they're allowed to come back legally. That's just common. You can't argue the logic of that, of course. And you have to make our official ports of entry more accessible. But when people come here seeking asylum, seeking a better life with their family, you... Of course, figure out the legitimacy of that claim, but you do it with humanity because America is based on immigration. We are all immigrants, and it says it on our Statue of Liberty, for crying out loud. Give us your poor, your tired, your huddled masses yearning to be free. We are that beacon of hope for the world, and when we instead are racist and demonize the people coming here, we undermine the very essence of our country. So no, I'm not advocating, nor is anyone, for open borders or weak borders. We should strengthen our borders in a bipartisan fashion. But what we should never, ever allow again is these people to be talked about as rapists and murderers and act as though gangs are pouring over the border. They are not. It is mostly families and people yearning for a better life and doing jobs that Americans don't do and being amazing members of society. And so we have to stop that demonization as the very core, and then we can have a conversation. But we can no longer allow demonization of human beings. It's just the core of what
0: causes... Of the politi- politicizing yes, human beings. Right. Because anytime you politicize, you dehumanize.
1: One hundred percent, and that's why there's other common sense things you have to do that I don't know how anybody argues against. I just debated Tommy Lahren, and she agrees that children, even though she won't advocate for it loudly and publicly, she agrees when asked directly. You have to give dreamers citizenship because they're children that were brought here. When you're brought here as a child, you're basically brought here against your will. You're basically kidnapped by your family and brought here. Kids don't call the shots in their families. You're brought to a country when you're a child and you've been nothing but a productive member of society, you become a citizen, hands down. If you've been here for many, many years, as an adult even, and have been productive, you become a citizen. I always hate when people say, well, but it's unfair because they cut the line. People are waiting in line. I say the exact opposite to those people in line. It's great that you're waiting in line, but if we so happen to have weakness at our border, that's our fault, we should fix that. But until we fix it, if you're so desperate for a better life, you are free to try to cut that line as well. Go to the Mexican border and try to come in if you're trying to save the life of your family, if you're trying to not be murdered by gangs in your home country so it's not as urgent for you. It's not like we're saying those people must stay in line and only people from Guatemala can come in through the border. Anybody can try and we're going to try to stop you at the border. So that's an invalid argument. So we just need to realize again that it's people coming through and when you keep humanity first, you stop people, you adjudicate the cases and you grant asylum when appropriate and you send people back when appropriate, but you do so kindly because we are good people.
0: Everyone gets due process. Yes. Yeah. Education. Where are you on education? Not in favor of it. (laughs) Perfect. Yeah.
1: Next. I'm kidding. Um, education is the, is so, so essential. It's the way that your nation grows. It's the way you incubate the future of your ability to compete in any way, to create the business leaders of the future and the citizens of the future and the civic leaders of the future. And so America should not have one of the lowest education success rates in the world.
0: And how do we level out the playing field of those in low-income communities versus higher income? Well, you need equity
1: in education as well. You need to go case-by-case basis and give extra attention and funding and specific programs where needed. You need to also, I think, have some sort of national testing where... There are even through video. So you know it's the exact same. There are certain things that are being communicated well despite the quality of each individual school. You know that there's a certain amount of information getting to each student every year. You need to teach context in school, something that I wish I had when I was in school. I think one of the biggest problems in education, and often it affects um, poorer communities, is there's such a divide scene between the power structures and the people that school already for all of us is seen as very punitive. And so you go into school and it's from day one, here's your syllabus, here's your 10 books, you're gonna be tested on these things or you're gonna be thrown out of school and failed. And it's this like draconian, scary world where you don't wanna learn. And most students, myself included, grew up hating studying and hating learning. I always say that I, I hated that the second I graduated from my 17 years of schooling, I realized how much I loved learning. Once it was optional. So instead present context, say, look, here's, you're here all day anyway, let me explain to you for the first week of, of each semester why these things will help you in your life. With each lesson, this is the, could help you in this way. This information could be useful in this aspect of your life. If you want to learn, feel free to listen. If not, feel free to tune me out and you're lost. And you empower students to feel excited about their education. The mistakes,
0: at least in my opinion, that I see being made in education is that the teachers do not explain why kids are being taught a subject, um, you know, just sort of get dumped into math and like, well, why are you learning math? But, you know, the, the why of things is extremely important. P- picking kind of a, a problem and then uh, using various educational tools to solve that problem, um, like using math or physics or economics to, to solve that problem, is far more engaging um, than teaching the tools
1: you modernize our classrooms. It's insane that our society has evolved in every way. We have high speed internet and technology abound and our schools are still dusty chalkboards and dusty old broken textbooks. We need high speed internet in in schools. We need to be able to make sure that our education evolves in a way that speaks to modern life. We do not still need to be testing only facts and numbers and names. When the internet solves that for you, and we need to teach critical thinking and concepts. And creative thinking. And creative thinking. You cannot take away funding for the arts. It's so important to a mind's ability to think out of the box. And also crucially important, if we're there to learn about our lives and for our lives, we need financial literacy taught in schools. How do we go through 17 years of schooling, 13 years of of primary education, and never have a class on budgeting, on or taxes. teaching how
0: kids how to balance a checkbook.
1: Balance a checkbook.
0: Or debt, what that means. How is How to credit credit
1: card responsibly. We, our school only teaches now for people to not think critically, but to be good workers, and we have to shift that.
0: Um, an issue that our young people have to deal with is the issue of guns. Where are you? Yeah. What's your policy for gun reform?
1: So I believe in the Second Amendment. I believe that our country certainly is largely founded on that. I think guns are cool. I sometimes go shooting guns. I'm considering buying a gun. I think being able to protect yourself is important. I think kids are cooler. Call me crazy on that. I think kids are cooler than guns. So, and so you
0: don't believe in caging kids. Not believe in caging them. And you believe that their lives are more important than guns. Yeah,
1: slightly more important. You're crazy. I know. I've got revolutionary ideas. Revolutionary. <laughs> I don't know if the country's ready for them.
0: but I'm Apparently to pres- not.
1: Yeah, apparently not. Yeah. But I'm willing to present them anyway. Um, so I think our students and our children should not be fearing being shot at school. And it's a real problem. Parents at town halls I've held are telling me they literally are just afraid to send their kid to school or to religious school on sunday for fear of it being shot up and so we need again to use common sense and to kick every politician out of office who is beholden to the nra it's insane that just a special interest group like that with millions and millions of dollars can buy votes if you have an a rating from the nra you should be thrown out of congress And that should be a shame campaign on those people because you are risking the lives of our citizens and our children. So I believe in common sense gun reform that 95% of the country agrees on. Background checks, universal in every instance, with no gun show loophole, with no private sale loophole, you want to buy a gun. It'll be registered just like a car. It should not be easier to get a, a gun than a driver's license.
0: You have to go through quite a process. Do you think gun own- owners should be licensed?
1: I think absolutely you should be licensed and know, prove that you can operate that gun safely and responsibly. Mm-hmm. I think that we need background checks and waiting periods that are significant enough that you can... Th- thoroughly check for mental health problems and criminal backgrounds because another crazy idea, I don't think you should be able to get a gun faster than you can get toilet paper on Amazon Prime. That just seems like common sense. Mm -hmm. You can have the gun forever. Toilet paper, you have to keep rebuying. So just be able to use common sense. Also, if you need a gun right now, probably a solid idea that you wait a few days. Calm down. You'll get that gun in a few days. You'll be good with it. And so we also need to ban weapons of war from our streets. We do not need assault weapons in our streets or for hunting. You're a very shitty hunter.
0: If you need an AR-15. If you need an AR-15. Yeah, you need another hobby.
1: To kill an innocent
0: mm-hmm. animal. Yeah. Either we you arm sneak the... up on, by the way. Yeah, who you that, sneak up on. Who you sneak up, up even on. even go heads Does, up to them. Doesn't even know you're there. Yeah,
1: exactly right. Either we arm the animals, Ooh. which is an idea. Right. I'm or, considering that guns. as well. Yeah, give the animals guns. Or you don't have weapons of war for hunting. It's ridiculous. I spoke to an elk hunter once who talked about shooting them with a rifle from 100 yards away. You try to get as close as you can, 50 yards, 20 yards. I said, I said to him, do you ever go up and just punch the elk in the face? And he goes, well, I would never do that. I have respect for the animal. I'll give him a chance for a fair fight. That's the respect you have yeah. for the animal. But just killing him outright with no warning, that's what respect. I wonder how you treat your grandmother. <laughs> oh
0: my <laughs> God. They never see it coming.
1: Right. And we have to restrict high-capacity magazines.
0: Um, where are you? But not taking anyone's
1: guns and that messaging there is so important, too. Because right. They've well, allowed- I agree
0: with you because we're actually a two-gun household, which people are stunned to find wow, out right. because I'm a part of the GVP community, and I do believe that we do need stricter gun laws. Uh-huh. So uh, people are always stunned when I'm like, no, I don't want to take away your guns. Right. I just want to make it so that you're not with an AR-15 right. and that... If you were to want to hurt somebody that you don't have access to that gun. Like if you have a history of a violent past or, um, you know, I think these red flag laws are really important. I think a family member Mm -hmm. should be able to tell on you, call the authority and say, you know what, my my son is not himself lately Mm -hmm. and he's got an arsenal of guns. And I think it would be appropriate if you went over and did a check.
1: I agree completely. And I also think we should consider, I haven't looked into it enough, but I think we should consider um, some sort of responsibility for the gun owner if the gun leaves the gun owner's hands and mm-hmm. gets taken by somebody else, because that will create a much higher responsibility for keeping track of your weapons and keeping them safe and locked up properly. Um, but and, I want- and
0: also that goes for states, right? Like states that have very strict gun laws, like Illinois. Right. Um, and Chicago, everybody talks about the gun violence in Chicago, right. but really they're getting their guns from the neighboring states. From the neighboring states. hundred na- percent.
1: State. So they have to stop allowing these BS talking points to perpetuate. Yeah. They have the toughest laws and they have horrible crime because people are going to the state next door with the weakest laws. Mm-hmm. So let's stop. What's the point in having a, 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 a discourse
0: yeah. when you don't actually focus on facts? Where are you on abortion?
1: I've never had one. Mm. And I don't plan to. I will never have an abortion. No. I'm firmly Therefore, against it for myself. <laughs> um, and I'm firmly against it for all men. Mm. And I think that is the whole point. Because I cannot have one and men cannot have one, we should not regulate women's ability to have one. We should not. I'm so sick of male legislators, male politicians deciding for women's bodies. It's so ridiculous and offensive, because you're trying to tell a human being what life they have to have. You're trying to impose your morality and just control over women's bodies in such a disgusting way. So not only do I believe that we need to protect women's access to abortion and expand it, we need to reverse the Hyde Amendment so that federal funding can go to reasonable abortions. And we actually started a a petition with my campaign. We have almost 5,000 signatures already of people fighting, arguing and saying, please let's get a constitutional amendment for a woman's right to choose because we just must. We just, and the argument that it's a human life with all respect, you can have whatever religious view you want, of course, and nobody will ever tell you that your religious view is wrong. And if your religion believes that an abortion is not appropriate, then by all means encourage your congregation and others of your faith to not have abortions. It's a free country, and you should do that. But you should not, through the separation of church and state that is enshrined in what our country is, make your morality, your religious morality, imposed on the rest of us. And so we need to give women the right and the ability to, to do what they believe with their bodies. And I also don't think there's much of an argument, not to mention there are readings of the Bible where it seems not against abortion anyway. But I believe that something that is the size of a grain of sand that does not yet have a brain is not a human being. It's a grain of sand.
0: This discrediting of truth, though, and fact, how do we come back from that? How do we bridge that divide between the people that believe in science and truth versus those that just believe in whatever the messaging tells them to believe in with humor, right?
1: With honesty, with comedy, with calling people out on their bullshit as directly as saying bullshit. Right. When Trump says it's a hoax, it's a climate change is a hoax. You say bullshit and you know it. You're doing that because you are trying to keep your moneyed interests moneyed. Enough of that shit. You know it's real. You have to bring facts. You say 98% of scientists, tell us your guys. Who's your sources? You call people out aggressively.
0: Whose responsibility is that besides our elected officials? The media?
1: The media big time. The media big time. The media, I will grant Trump this one point. While I don't think the things that he accuses them of being fake news, he accuses them of being fake news on fact about him which is bullshit. They're saying real things about him. But it is true that they... I think a really bad thing that happened in our country was when we switched to these 24-hour news networks. It really sold our ability to have a grasp on information down the river. And under my administration, we would make these 24-hour news networks rename themselves infotainment networks. You can't call yourself a news network when all you're doing all day is perpetuating drama at the highest level as though there's level 10 alert at everything that is spoken or said and not speaking about many of the important issues 99 percent of the day every day all they're talking about is trump said this trump tweeted this let's debate it for an hour and they only even show a five second clip of him talking and then they just debate about yeah and
0: sometimes at, sometimes at the detriment of real news stories every day that we that just get lost
1: every day the detriment of that
2: and a good day to you from New York we are breaking in on a very busy news day in our nation's capital who's really crazy President Trump or the media all right as you can see we are at the Hannity Big Board tonight for a very special reason we are going to untangle the giant web of Clinton scandals and corruption.
1: And so either get serious about your news or, or don't call yourself news. And it's something that I've encountered in this campaign so much, too. It's been so frustrating because, like I said, all of these can- candidates that announce from within the current power structures are instantly legitimized. And then I come as one of the only outside voices. There are only two other outside voices in this campaign, Andrew Yang and Marion Williamson. And I like them both, but they also both are multi-multi-millionaires. And that's fine. I believe in success, but that shouldn't be the only voice that we got, that and cautious career politicians. And I'm coming in it from a voice that is critical of the media and is critical of our power structures.
0: Do you think that's why you're not getting more media
1: coverage? 100% they are afraid to have a loose cannon, as they would term it, voice on there. I've messaged with news anchors who have said, I don't know, this is off-brand for us. I'll talk to producers. The news should not have a brand. You should report what happens. That's your job. And I've had even late night shows already say, comedy shows that should embrace a comedian as a possibility, as a voice in this. And they are not. Say, well, now that the first debate field is locked, we're just interested in having those candidates on. But these other voices weren't given a chance. My voice Mm -hmm. wasn't even given a chance yet on a mainstream
0: way. And before even the first debate happened, still a year and a half? Before the election, so what happens now? The debates happen. What happens with your with your campaign? You just keep plugging along.
1: Keep plugging along. We're trying to qualify for the second debate. And anybody listening, if you can go to Glebe 2020 dot com, if you believe in anything I've said, and believe in not endorsing me, not endorsing me at this time, but just in an outside voice and in a comedian's voice to keep everybody honest, please go to g l e i b twenty twenty dot com and donate whatever you can afford. Even a dollar qualifies as a donation, but. These things are very expensive, as you know. So if you can afford more, please donate more. And we're trying to And also
0: there are rules. What is it? 150,000 unique donations to get into the second debate? debate. That's the third debate. So
1: the second debate, which we're trying to qualify now for, is 70,000 unique donations or 1% in the polls. And so we're trying to get the unique donations threshold. And we have a ways to go. We have thousands of donations. but We have a long ways to go. We need some sort of viral moment of people saying this is a voice we need so we can just have a counterpoint and in case Ben is right and we need a comedian to stop Trump or at least in the race for the next many months to show the other candidates ways to poke holes at him and to weaken him and to kind of humiliate him and show them his weaknesses, Mm -hmm. then please... Help us get that viral moment and spread the word so that there can be not just the same voices over and over and over again. You're going to see on the debates very little difference in these people's policies for two nights back-to-back of 20 candidates. So we're trying to get there. But it's so much the news putting their foot on the scales because also what looks like will be the case is not only do we need 70,000, we probably are also going to need 1% in the polls because what happened right before the first debate deadline, it was some real bullshit, Alyssa.
0: Tell me all about
1: it. <laughs> is we were going really hard towards that, and then with about four days to go, they came out saying basically you need both because enough candidates had qualified with just qualified right the first threshold, and they give preference still to the polling, right? So even if you qualify with the donations, you, they give preference to polling, and enough had qualified with just the polling part. So the problem with that is they're only accepting... Polls where they list the names, not open-ended polls. That's how Governor Bullock was left out of the debate stage. And so I'm not on the polls. They're not mentioning my name. I believe I'm the only campaign that I know of, at least that, that we know of, that has thousands of donations and support in every state around the country that's not being listed in the polls. And so we have no possible chance. So we're, trying, we're starting a campaign now to write letters to the editor of the publications that are the qualifying polls saying, just please list our name. Give them a chance to say, oh, Ben Glebe, I know that guy. I used to watch him on Chelsea lately, or I love his game show idiot test, or, or I've seen his campaign, and he seems like a really funny, interesting, smart voice that we might need in this race. I like him. I'm supporting him just so we can poll because we're also shifting our focus split between that and the third debate now, which is a very hard threshold. It's actually, I believe, 130,000 donations, but it might be 150, and 2% in the polls. You need both. The good news is we have three months to get there. So we actually have a chance to run more of a campaign on our terms. But I'm trying to also run a campaign that is not beholden to only rich donors and not beholden to only spending five hours a day on the phone talking to rich people, begging them for money. Every other candidate except Elizabeth Warren and me is doing that every day. It's
0: a very big problem I think in politics in general is the money aspect.
1: And no one talks about
0: it. They say they fight for even you. once you're elected.
1: Right. They spend they, half their time
0: half on their the phone time where they should be in, in Congress, they should be in their districts, they should be learning about the, you know, whatever they can help in within right. their district. And instead, they're in California trying to get
1: it's get money. It's ridiculous and I'm yeah. trying not to do that. So also, for that reason, let's see. We, were calling it the democ- we are calling it the Democracy Challenge because let's see if just small dollar donors can get somebody on the debate stage.
0: Let's take. So do you want to take some questions? I would love that. So, we did something new for this episode. We asked my Twitter followers if they had any questions for Ben. So, at robert underscore Q610 asks catchy
1: rolls off the tongue
0: yeah exactly asks why do you you think that you can win in a field of 20 plus contenders when most people don't even know who you are
1: well now that i've done sorry not sorry and the elissa milano podcast phenomenon (laughs) i think that will change um but for the reasons that i stated that i bring something different no one needs to ask what how my voice is different i think that we should all be afraid in a very real way, that no matter what brilliant politician we nominate, if they are a cautious career politician, we have a very real chance of losing to Donald Trump again because he plays trash-talking, troll, heckler politics. And I have never lost to a heckler in my life, and I will embarrass him and humiliate him to his face, and I will be able to show him for the weak, sad, person that he is, the toupee fiasco, that is Donald Trump, the coward the duck, that is this orange monster that has to be taken down, and I will say and do things that other candidates won't do because they have to still work with these people and work with their work with Trump's allies and I don't. I have nothing to lose in politics, so I will be much more fearless than any of these candidates. Donald Trump is the greatest risk to our nation, but also the best trash talker in political history. I am not a politician, or a greedy millionaire, or billionaire, but I've dealt with narcissistic, crybaby hecklers like Trump hundreds of times before, and I've never been defeated.
2: Don't talk about the Donald! Oh, no? No! Oh, I thought
1: this was America, so weird. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Don't talk about that, that's exactly what they would say in Russia. Don't talk about Vladimir Putin that way! I don't have a career in politics I need to protect, or a bunch of billionaire friends that need me to pass laws that benefit only them. No special interests or no backdoor partnerships in Washington have any control over me and they never will. Cause when I'm done, I'll just go right back to the comedy clubs. Our democracy has been hacked. It has been taken from us by people who only care about power and money and keeping all of it for themselves. Let's take our democracy back.
0: Adam Chaudhry would like to know that if presidency is not in reach, would you run for Senate?
1: I have been asked that question a couple of times recently, and I am certainly thinking about it. Um, I am torn and it's something that I'm so busy on the campaign. I haven't been able to really consider all of the pros and cons of it, but it, I'm certainly much more open to any lower office now than I ever have been before, but I still don't know if I would or not just because like I said, I'm only running because I think I might have a unique chance to stop Trump. I'm not super super loving the idea of getting stuck in the gummed up works of Congress mm. because I think you can be more effective as an artist or an activist.
0: Let's see. Carrie L. Spurl asks... I like that name. Yeah, It's, a good, it's a good name.
2: Carrie L. Spurl.
0: How can your politics unite the party?
1: I think humor unites people. I think...
0: Maybe being an outsider as well. not Very
1: much. Very much. Because there's this discord right now where I think people feel removed from their politicians. And it's part of why I think Mayor Pete is so appealing is because he seems like this more just accessible, nice, normal person. And I think that's what I can bring even to another degree is that I'm just a regular dude who knows how to make you laugh, who sits there with you and has a beer. And, and I know the kitchen table issues because... I have the same kitchen table and it's got a wobbly leg and I put stuff under it so it doesn't shake when I eat. And so I think I can unite the party because the party is comprised mostly of real people and not of politicians. And I'm not a politician.
0: This is a good question. Um, If this is from Jessica, Wright, If you happen to be endorsed by someone or a company, would it change a stance that you have for something you pledge now?
1: Oh, never, never. I, I, welcome the endorsement of any people and people who work at different companies. Of course, my campaign doesn't take any corporate PAC money, um, no lobbyist money, but, um, it would never change who I am or what I stand for. People can feel free to donate if they believe in what I stand for. And I will always listen to everybody. And if they appeal to my common sense, and I think it would help more people. The only litmus test I would ever have as president is who will be helped the most how can we help the most people? And that's what we will do. And so that would never sway me, but I do wish the politics could be so much more transparent. I wish that politicians, instead of hiding who gives them money, talked about it out loud in their speeches like a podcast mm-hmm. ad wouldn't mm-hmm. it be great if in the speech by the way this speech is brought to you by ben and jerry's in patagonia <laughs> two companies i believe in yes. that present good things yes. now let's move on instead of having to figure it out and, yeah. dig and
0: hide. how is that not a thing that
1: would be wonderful and then you can take money from companies you believe in right and you can say yeah i took money yeah, from probably. patagonia not probably. from Exxon."
0: right um uh so paul kafuk or kafuk Maybe? I like it.
1: <laughs> fuck I'm going to start saying that on the campaign trail when I'm frustrated.
0: what fuck is this? He says, can you ask him about his stance on burn pits and what he thinks the VA should do for those of us who suffer from lung problems? Will he hold the VA accountable in helping us instead of trying to shift the blame? Time to get some answers on veterans' issues.
1: Great question. I don't know what burn pits are. I didn't know that term, but I think that Let's it is... Let's look it up. Sure. One of the great, please tell me, tell me when you have it. Um, one of the, you already have it? Okay. One of the great, you have it now. Okay, great.
0: So let, let me read it, at, or is the mic picking you up? Probably Allison? Not. Here. This is Allison, my producer. Hold on. Firm pit refers to an area in military sites devoted to open air combustion of trash. So they were a common way to get rid of waste at military sites in Iraq and Afghanistan.
1: Yeah, so we're going to move those far away from our troops. Um, you cannot be frivolous with the lives of our heroes. And we've done it so often in this country. I just got to visit with our troops in Camp Pendleton. They're just mostly young men and women that love this country and sometimes are signing up because of that love and sometimes because they need money. Yeah. Or they need direction or guidance. And the one thing we promise them is that we will take care of them when they're, we'll protect them best we can when they're serving, and we will take care of them when they come home. And we're failing that in every way. It is so tragic. I would immediately shift funds from our military budget to fully fund the VA. It's insane that Obama didn't do that. It's insane that Trump claims he's so great on vets and doesn't do that. We need to fully fund the VA so that our heroes, if we can't provide good health care for our heroes who fight for us and risk their lives for us, what kind of nation are we? We are not upholding our values. How
0: about just child care? There's a bill right now that is that passed the passed out of the House called the Veterans Child Care Act, which basically says that we would offer child care to any veteran that is spending time in the v a for some sort of whether it be drug addiction some something
2: uh-huh. that
0: we would offer and McConnell will not put this fucking bill up for a vote how I, if we can't agree on how to protect and serve the people that serve this country better because of partisan politics how do we how do we fight for that it's 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 so disappointing to me this is a bit, veterans are a big issue for me
1: huge for me as well mitch mcconnell he's subhuman i mean the man does not seem to have the emotions of a human being and i think that's a pretty key quality for wanting to lead humans is to be one of them you know i i tell people that I'm a regular person and I can relate to them but I'm also a human being and that's a pretty key element Uh, I don't feel like a man who is part turtle and part zombie should be in charge of our lives Um, these are not intellectual issues these are human issues and we just have to use our humanity and tackle problems and cross things off the list already don't let them all linger on forever
0: at spaced underscore one has a good question sounds like they're high spaced one Funny you should say that. Legalizing cannabis (laughs) federally. (laughs) Do you support it?
1: I definitely support it. Yes, I um, would be a huge hypocrite if I didn't. While I'm not smoking weed during this campaign, I definitely have been somebody who has benefited from marijuana in my life, and I've seen what it does for people in pain, and I've seen what it does creatively for people's brains, and I've seen how it is... Anxiety Anxiety? disorder, which
0: I have, and CBD it has helped me so tremendously.
1: Yes. And we need to just stop in general, in, in many ways, victimless crimes should not be punished. And if you are doing something with the freedom you have in America, America is based on freedom. Let's give ourselves some freedoms back. And it's clear in every way that marijuana is far less detrimental than alcohol. Alcohol is a destructive drug that I enjoy also sometimes but there's just no common sense way to say that's legal and is not. Alcohol's not a, 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 a drug you give people with cancer to help them. Marijuana is. So not that it's all about the drug aspect, of the healing aspects of it, but if it can do that too, that's a substance that I think should I be given access to I think it's the healing a-
0: aspect of it that the pharmaceutical companies are so terrified of, though. Of
1: course, yeah. Um, Anything that cuts in their money, unless they can turn it into a marijuana-doid something they can charge us thousands of dollars a year for and gouge us
0: spaced, which
1: being gouged when you're high is not easy.
0: (laughs) It's very unpleasant. Spaced one also asks criminal justice reform. Do you support it?
1: I do. Indeed. I do. Indeed. I think that's one of the good things that Trump has done. Um, the first step act and thanks to Kim Kardashian for that Mm -hmm. in a very real way for taking on advocacy to help.
0: And Van Jones
1: and Van Jones. Absolutely. And
0: all of the activists and advocates.
1: Absolutely. Um, and uh I think that we need criminal justice reform in this country. We have to stop the school to prison pipeline. We have to end uh privately owned prisons. That should not be a thing, as I say on my website. Find a better business, bro. Don't make your business on incarcerating people and' so sick it's disgusting and I think that part of the way that that I like that I like to look at this issue, we have to end cash bail as well because it just disproportionately affects the poor and, and It's incarcerating people because they cannot afford to pay money to get out there. Rich people can. And so um, another idea of mine, if you want to also stop corporate crime while also reforming our prisons, combine white-collar prisons with regular prisons.
0: That's a great idea.
1: And you will see reform so fast. And you'll also see corporate crime drop so fast when these people actually have to pay consequences, not be in country club jails. So there's that one, spaced one. Thank you for the questions.
0: Um, yeah, those were good questions. Tell everyone again how they can support your campaign.
1: Um, if you liked it all, what you heard, and again, this early, we should not be endorsing anybody. I don't even know if I'm voting for myself yet, to be honest. No, I'm kidding. I am. I've, I've got my <laughs> You're endorsing vote. yourself? I am endorsing myself. Okay, okay. <laughs> I approve this message. Um, but we, if you believe there should be another voice in this race this early, and a voice that comes from the outside of the machine, and outside of our entrenched establishment, please go to Glebe G-L-E-I-B, 2020.com. You can read up more on my platform, although I've spoken about a lot of it here, and you can donate to the campaign by clicking the Donate button or go directly to the Donate page at tinyurl.com slash donategleib, um, G-L-E-I-B, and um, follow me on social media, at Ben Gleib on Twitter and Instagram, slash Ben Glebe on Facebook and YouTube.com slash BeGlebe on YouTube. But I'm posting on social media every day. I'm trying to give people a real look unvarnished Inside a campaign and just follow along and spread the word, please. You can sign up to volunteer on the campaign on the website as well.
0: Thank you
2: for joining me.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: The cliche goes like this. Two things you never want to see being made are sausage and laws. I get the sausage because really, who wants to know about that? But laws? I mean, come on. If the process is so bad that just seeing how bills pass sickens people, doesn't it seem like we might have a problem? Common sense tells us that we should introduce plain laws with a clear meaning, debate those laws, and then vote on those laws. It seems that this is missing. From our lawmaking process, I'll give you an example. In 1994, Congress passed an assault weapons ban, and I'm not looking to debate whether that was good or bad. It was good. But let's look at how ridiculous the process was. This ban was a response in part to a terrible school shooting in which the killer used a Kalashnikov semi-automatic rifle. The original version gave authority to the ATF to ban future assault weapon models, removing the need to legislate around crooked gun manufacturers who would try and dodge laws. And it banned just 14 guns. But in order to get it passed through Congress, it had to remove the ATF authority and exempt 650 other guns that would have been banned. Oh, and it had to expire after a few years. It ended up a weak and only marginally effective law, and Americans keep dying to this day because of it. Where was the common sense there? Look, this is so important. If we want our government to work, the laws it enacts must pass the smell test. Somebody who's not a lawyer has to be able to hear about a bill and what it will do and say, oh yeah, I totally get that, even if they don't agree with it. Instead, we have laws that come up for a vote with amendments entirely negating the law to which they are attached. We enact regulations that are shockingly stupid. Look at the Medicaid work requirements federal and state officials are trying to impose. People need Medicaid in part because they can't work or can't find a job. And we expect that this will be a, a net positive Try not to puke when you look at the huge tax cuts we give the richest people in America while we also try to cut funding for school lunch programs. It's the kind of thing that everyone can look at and say, whose fucking dumb idea was that? It just, it doesn't compute. When it's applied, common sense is such a, powerful thing. In January of 1776, Thomas Paine published a pamphlet, the infographic of his day. It was written in plain English that everyone in the colonies could understand, and it was read by much of the population as a result. Basically, the same proportion of the people in the colonies read Paine's common sense as watch the Super Bowl today. It passed the smell test It explained in clear and logical terms why America needed her independence and it sparked a revolution. Now we need a similar revolution within our government. If we want to stop eroding trust in our lawmakers, it won't take a whole lot. Just less corruption, fewer ideologues, and a lot more common sense. Government of the people, by the people. And for the people. Sorry, not sorry, is executive produced by Sim Sarna and Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnick. It's edited by Josh Windisch. Our production associate is Daniela Silva. Music by Josh Cook and Alicia Eagle. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word.
2: Sorry, not sorry. back.